I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a while since we've been in the Love Like Hell studio. Yeah, since May. We've been a little bit behind on the game since we made our magic last time. Ah, we haven't been behind. We've been doing exactly what we needed to do. We were getting ready for uh, for Crete, for me to go to Crete uh, in June, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. We were working hard to the finish line. And then we took a break. And we took a long, long break. Yeah, you should know that... We missed you an immense amount this whole time. Yeah, because it's, it's November. Right. Let's be clear. Yeah. I made in November. It's a long time. <laughs> You're not hearing guilt. You're, we're not like heaping coals of guilt on ourselves about this. And, but here's the deal. We have taken the time off and it has been wonderful. We have not thought twice about you guys. We have not, you know, said, oh no, what will they do without us? Is that rude? Is that rude to say? We just like to keep it real, real honest. That's kind of like <laughs> our brand. So, you know, we have to actually just say what we think and mean what we say. Life's been busy. I mean, we've done a lot. Yeah. I have a brain fog about what we've done. I think that's kind of how life goes. <laughs> What's that Christmas carol? Uh, so this is Christmas and what have you done? I feel like that's the judgiest Christmas carol I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Who's saying that? little... I, oh, no, I don't have a fact checker. I have no idea. John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and it's Yoko singing it. She says it. What have you done? So judgy. What have we done? <laughs> Could I be judgy in return? Okay. Okay. So we were preparing, as we said, for June, where we were a month on hiatus because I was going to go to Greece, the island of Crete, for a solid month to write and to play. So that's something big. I mean, that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. Yeah. Do you remember how that came about? Do you remember how that all was going down? Last January, you and I were in Mexico. and Oaxaca. Oaxaca. We can't tell you exactly where. Undisclosed location. Yeah, because it's, you know, kind of important. Yeah. Place. Um, but you were doing some dreaming. You were out there writing. Doing uh, some really good writing, by the way. Yeah. Some of the best writing I'd ever done. I don't know if you guys know this about Rainier, but he's a writer. <laughs> and so we were out there and we're, we're different, you and I. Different people. Different people. Yeah. Uh, he's writing up a storm and it's a relaxing vacation. It's mm -hmm. not like we're not like parasailing. No. We're not like swimming with the turtles. We're drinking micheladas on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we're different because I love to come and go in terms of like the water and come back and rest and read. And Rainier likes to see it all. Like he takes it all in mm -hmm. and he's writing uh, a good portion of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting there on the modern typewriter, clickety click, clickety click, tapping my thumbs. Which means the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he muses about wanting to have, wouldn't it be nice to have a spacious time in which he could write and just have the ability without distractions? Because another thing that you all know is that we have four kids. Very distracting. <laughs> yeah. So he actually maximizes so much of his time on the modern typewriter while surrounded by the zoo that we do have here. Yeah. And so you were musing. You were saying, hey, what if 
an opportunity came up in which I could actually kind of vacate and have a spaciousness to write. Uh, but I was even more specific than that. I, as I recall, I said, wouldn't it be amazing if I had like a solid month in the middle of the Mediterranean where I could just sit by the sea and write? Like, wasn't I that specific? You might have been. Yeah. You might have been that specific. And I was probably like, pachaw. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> ever going to happen. Right. Like, okay, let's dream. Because we already were kind of living the dream in that moment. And, and then I think less than 24 hours later, you got a little memo in your inbox that said, here's an opportunity yeah. in Crete yeah. for you to come and write. Yeah. Somebody offered, a person who I had had very minimal interaction with before, did not know their situation, sent me a message and said, hey, I own a hotel in Crete that is about 12 feet away from the Mediterranean. And I would love it if you came there and um, this was a patronage for you for a month to a couple of months to just write. What would you think? Can you believe that? I couldn't believe it, actually. When you said that to me, I was dubious yeah. for sure because it was something you just plucked out of the air and then the next day when we were on the beach doing the things that we were doing which was nothing splashing in the water and writing it right. landed on your lap it was one of those moments where i actually thought that instagram had been listening to our conversation as they do and had like fabricated some kind of weird bot to interact with and that they were going to like take, take my money, take my identity, something I was, I was very weirded out by it. Yeah. It almost felt like a little bit spooky. Oh yeah. In some ways. It was very spooky. But that point of origin until you went, it wasn't like, Hey, let's just go do this. Mm -hmm. It probably took January until April to make that solid decision. Yeah. I mean, there were so many considerations as we were getting into it, as we were sort of navigating that. And not just, for me, considerations aren't just practical things. They're the feel of it, right? And I, I think I was feeling it out. I was feeling if it, if it could be okay, if it was really what I was able to do or wanting to do. And I had kind of like my fleeces out. I had some, some signs that I was, that I was looking at. It, it felt like almost though every day there was some kind of information or data that was coming in that was like, you should do this. You should do this. But I was a little scared too. I mean, in all honesty. Yeah. One of the things that, that we kind of were musing about you and I was about this, this uh, idea of friendship and relationship and lovership. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those points in our relationship in which we had to make really wise-minded decisions based on, you know, what we have created on a whole, but how to really show up as friends in this particular situation, an opportunity. So you're receiving these signs, you're considering, you're wondering if it's a good fit or a good feel. And we're having all kinds of questions in the background. One of the earliest memories of our relating, and I don't know if we would have said, yeah, we were dating, but uh, you had an opportunity to go to Spain. Mm. Do you remember this? I remember it. Yeah. My, my mother was uh, headed to Barcelona, Barcelona uh, and Madrid. And, 
and ask if I wanted to go. Um, now, at the time, I was involved in graduate school. I was working full time. I you know, was fathering two kids largely on my own. And it was almost unimaginable that I could do that. So I, I kind of brushed it off, really. Yeah. And the conversations that we had... Uh, like around it, I remember saying, well, why wouldn't you want to go? This seems like a great opportunity. Um, what would hold you back? And I remember, I'm, I'm remembering as a love interest and a friend that that was something that I really encourage. And I would say this word like almost champion, like cheerlead, like you should go do it. How often do we have opportunities to step into new places and situations and exploration? Why not? And that felt really easy to do. It was at the beginning of our relationship. It felt really open-handed. There was no risk involved. It just felt like a beautiful thing to say, yeah, step into it. Why not? Yeah. And it was such a gift. I mean, that time you're talking about me going to Spain because... Um, I don't think I would have gone had you not really pushed me, again, just as a friend. But I, I kind of would have glossed over it. I would have thought myself, ah, I'm not deserving, or I just would have missed it altogether. I went and it was magical. I mean, it was a really incredible time. And in part, I was able to allow myself to have that experience because a, a good friend had kind of pushed me to do so. So it was really interesting as we were considering like this opportunity for you to go to Crete. It was one of those things that I really had to, as your partner, like tap back into a place that was uh, your friend in nature, not like this idea of I'm your wife. And so because there's this opportunity, you have this deep obligation um, that would be different than as a friend. I really had to ask myself questions as to why is this not a green light? Maybe that sounds silly. Does that sound silly in relationships where we, where we kind of hold back? I think we should weigh the pros and cons. But it just seemed like when I allowed myself to imagine another version of myself, I was so much more open-handed and generous. You know, I, it occurs to me that, um, that we, we make a, a jump in relationships from friendship which I think occupies like the lowest level of our, <laughs> of, of our relational um, sort of quota that we think, oh, well, it's just a friend. You're just a friend. And then we move up from there, you know, like someone I'm dating, someone I go out on dates with, someone I'm, you know, actively engaged with, maybe someone I'm living with or married to, right? We, we go up this escalator and friend is the bottom rung. Um, and the reality is, as we move away from that friendly place, it's almost like we start to think of the relationship far differently. We begin to think of it, I think, in that very relational way, which is a fortress, right? And we've talked about this a lot where, you know, the fortress keeps us insulated. The fortress keeps us safe. It keeps us isolated. Cut yourself off from experiences or opportunities that might threaten the other person leaving the fortress. Um, we don't want anyone to come in or out of this fortress. The bricks kind of hold together. Our agreements hold us together in such a way to keep things the same, to not shift. People can't change, right? And of course, that's the very opposite of the nature of a friendship. 
A friendship is built around this beautiful place of mutual support, mutual evolution, right? Walking together through the the triumphs and tragedies of life. We kind of shift that idea out for a fortress or a prison kind of analogy in which we house our love and we keep it safe. We keep it locked down. It seems like our friendships often get kind of the more flexible, generous versions and sometimes our relationship because they're um, based on security and safety. Oftentimes it's like we're, we're protective in ways that in a friendships we can be expansive. Mm-hmm. And I think that our romantic relationships can really suffer because of that. And I think that that was one of the questions that we were really asking when Crete was an option to go do like, how, how do we allow for expansion How do we allow for new places and relationship when we've kind of, we built a structure that can it hold it? And so um, I love that when we put romance and friendship back together again, of course, the origin of where it starts, when we put it back together, then we start to have uh, more possibility again. Right. I mean, in this idea of relating uh, kind of love as a fortress, love as as a prison, love is finite and relationships are fragile. And so we have to make it into that fortress, into that prison to keep each other safe and inside. And I think when you're occupying that mentality, it's like, well, we want the other person to be happy because friends want the other person to be happy, but, but not too happy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like if we're honest, not if it's outside of the confines of our fortress prison. We'd, we'd rather them actually be very miserable than leave those confines that keep us feeling safe, right? And, and I, I don't think that's a very healthy thing, right? Uh, I would rather see love as a home um, set in an endless expanse rather than this fortress with a moat and alligators surrounding it, you know? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things uh, that we used to do often was we would always have our front door open. We lived in downtown. We had our front door open. We, ha- we moved. We had our front door open. You know, what, what happens is you get all kinds of interesting things that enter. You get friends. You get family. You also get some flies, right? If you have this thoroughfare, you might have some, some neighbors that you're not sure if you want in your home. But the idea that a home can be extending and expansive and that we allow that And so uh, there is an idea of security. It doesn't mean that it's always safe, Mm. but there is this this foundation of security. And we have our doors open and we have the possibility Mm. to allow those things to free and to flow. Um, I think it makes life a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of, I love that idea of uh, home, but also not to keep people out. Right. This this open door. Uh, You and I have talked about, we were on the Mark Groves podcast not too long ago, and we actually kind of workshopped this analogy of, um, of love as a trampoline, right? Yeah. Now what I, what I enjoy about this analogy is the first thing I know as a parent about a trampoline is that I'm scared of it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Every time our youngest son goes to jump on it, I my heart kind of clutches just a little bit. Is it because we actually built the trampoline both times? Is that why your heart clutches? <laughs> right. Like I inherently know the lack of safety. Right. And as you know, I, I I see him jump on it and he does these, you know, like triple sow cows and like quadruple lutzes or whatever they're doing on there. And it's like it's amazing. And every time I hold my breath, right, the the trampoline is inherently risky, right? I have I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, homeowners insurance policies everywhere will soon disavow trampolines from being able to be on site. Because honestly, like if you're going to keep yourself safe, if you're going to keep yourself totally without any risk in life, don't have a trampoline there. But here's the thing. If you've ever been around kids who are on those trampolines, they are delighted, right? They are absolutely brimming with joy. I mean, again, we can open up our window right now and hear their laughter filling the air. Endless hours of entertaining one another, bouncing higher, jumping further, right? Doing all of these kinds of things which contain a risk, but also it's a calculated risk, right? You know the risks and you know the delights, the joys. I think that is a better analogy for relationships. Relationships are those things that take us higher, that take us further. They allow us to see more. They allow us to interact and engage with others. And by the way, our kids don't just bounce on it alone. They have all the neighborhood kids over too. So relationships should be that ground upon which we interact with the world around us. They can come in and out of our view. And in all of it, it allows us to go further and higher. I think that is a much better analogy than a fortress. Mm -hmm. I love that analogy. And I'm thinking about all the ways that we get fearful in friendship, not just lovership and fearful in, in friendship is that like when people change, when people change course, when they no longer have the same belief system, when they no longer uh, think like we think, when they become a mystery to us, we might feel like we're losing them. And so I'm thinking about the complexities of, you know, not just lovership like we're talking about, but friendship and, and where those things can get really fragile. And that it is continuing to create spaces in which we're curious, but also not threatened by another's change or growth or if someone looks different than us. I think that's really difficult. You know, it's hard to be uh, in relationship in marriages or partnerships, but sometimes it's actually really hard to be a friend. Mm. And sometimes we get scared in friendship. So I think sometimes in that, what keeps us from, from extending, what keeps us from bouncing higher in friendship or lovership or relationship? Yeah, I mean, well... Okay, let's go back to Crete. I, as I think about it, I would guess that in the last 11 years of marriage, roughly 4,000 nights, we've missed sharing a bed like a handful of times together. We've joked that we don't just hold hands at night when we sleep. Like we hold elbows and feet and shoulders and toes. And I mean, asking us to take a month away was to create a real new possibility for us. It was an inherent risk, right? That was a built-in reality that suddenly took us away from the standard operating procedure. 
suddenly we weren't holding one another. Suddenly we weren't engaged with one another. And in the absence of one another, all kinds of things might flood in that distract, right? Fears, anxieties, doubts, new delights, enjoyments, whatever those things are, the mind can only guess at. So to give one another permission to have that kind of space is a, is a tremendous admission of the lack of control that we are suddenly going to have. And we like control. Control makes us feel safe, right? Feel like we're not going to end up alone. Feel like we're not going to be abandoned somehow. Feel like, like reality isn't going to happen. Because the truth is that no relationship works out. Like there is no relationship that ends well because they all end. The best relationships end. Death, divorce, even the best. And maybe we should change the way we evaluate relationships then, not by longitude or permanence, because those are illusions. But maybe we should start to evaluate relationships based on the merit of the friendship, the number of laughs shared, the number of nights where you held elbows, right? What are those places, the number of opportunities you gave one another to explore the world? Again, what if we chose to relate with the basis of friendship? Right. Rather than this idea of locking one another down for a permanent future that, quite frankly, isn't even real. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions that come up in that. It's what if you change? What if this changes everything? Will we still be connected? How do we find our way back? There's this great uh, theory around um, relational um, object permanence in which even when we're not together, are we still connected? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we take this illustration from psychology, object permanence, right? You see the object when I put it behind my back, do you still know it's there? Mm -hmm. Or have I really fooled you and I've disappeared? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this idea that we have around this fear. If we're not connected or in the same space, um, what will happen? Do I believe that we are still connected? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, object permanence is really one of the first things that happen. You develop that between ages, you know, like birth and two years old. So if you think about this idea of, um, of learning that, you know, whether it's mom or, or a toy or the wall, that it's still there, even when I open my eyes, close my eyes, there it is again. So if you think about that being one of the first things we learned, the reality is a lot of us don't learn that in relationship, right? Now, object permanence, it sort of pushes against the idea I just shared, which is impermanence, right? So there is this tension of permanence and impermanence. So who's still there? Is it the object or is it me? Am I the one who remains? Right? And I think that that is actually the more important thing in relationship to go. And even when you're not here, I'm okay. I'm here. Right? That, that impermanence allows me to believe in and find effective the connection between myself and the relationship. Wow. 
I think that ability to have security within yourself is really what you're speaking to because we really can't control, we can't um, project what will happen in these spaces uh, when we do let go of control. And I, I really appreciate what you said about control is just when I'm scared or fearful that I actually have some kind of power here when I really don't. I can try to problem solve all the things, but in reality, it's just my attempts to regulate my uh, nervous system. Can I be okay? Can I be loved? Can I uh, find that within myself? I think that's such an important piece. I think also really front loading when you're taking risks, there's lots of conversation that belong in those places. You know, when we were taking what we perceived as a risk. Now, I'm really aware that there's lots of people all over the world that are separated by their loved ones. <laughs> yeah. I'm really aware that there's military people and, you know, artists and professional anything out there that spend a lot of time away. And I was hearing recently an, another interview that said, well, is this hard on your marriage that you're gone so long? And the person said, uh, I think marriage is just hard in general, <laughs> right? Right. And so I really believe that, you know, I'm really aware that lots of people face this. But for us, it was such a conversation because we really value the way that we connect and we really value the conversations in between. And we wanted to create a culture of trust and expansion. Right. And, and so, of course, then here, yet again, we're kind of rooting into this idea of friendship, right? Because friendship communicates. I think that's one of the one of the things that often gets lost in further stages of relationship if it ever existed, right? And we've talked so many about so much about these stages, but the first stage of relating obviously being, you know, union where you're certainly mask forward. I mean, you really are putting on um, you know, your best behavior, putting the best foot forward here. Um and then they fall in love with it, right? They fall in love with the best and you fall in love with their best. And, you know, even when you see them as they are, it's, it's like, it's so humorous. I, I always love, you know, conceptualizing like a, a tea or something. And someone has met you know, some wonderful, charming young man. It's like, oh, he's so wonderful. And he's so honest, ladies. I mean, oh my gosh, I asked him all about himself and he told me he was a serial killer. Oh, He's just so authentic with me. And it's like, you know, everything at that stage is just delighted, just delightful. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the, that's the, the important part of that first stage of relationship. It gets you off the couch. You have to see them as really great so that you'll move forward from your, you know, rather comfortable isolation and you'll be in connection. But then you... But then because you've fallen in love with that mask, you, you want them to stay that way or you want to stay that way. So you, now you're involved in kind of this mutual illusionment process where I'm deeply committed to not only keeping up my appearances, but I'm also deeply committed to you keeping up your appearances. And if I see you shift or see you change, I'm going to call you on it. Well, that's not you. That's not who you are. You're changing. Don't change. I like the mask. And sometimes they don't even come with that mask. We put that mask on them because we want them to be what we want them to be for us. We've also created an illusion alongside of them. We want them to be a certain something. So we pretend that they are. 
Mm, right. <laughs> right. So I think, right, like it gets us off the couch. We're enamored. We love it. It's easy. And then we don't like it when people start to step outside of that. We become offended. We throw up some red flags. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to do. And then we pout, right? Now, I, I think that one of the jobs then of relationships again, because this is the job of friendship, is to cheer one another on in our mutual evolution. Don't, don't pick someone who, who checks the boxes. Pick someone who outgrows the boxes with you. And, and yeah, of course, that's scary. It's so scary. And again, we're going to the root of a fear here that would keep us in our prison. Don't change. Because if you change, you might change and I might not. Or you might change in such a way where you no longer need me. Think of all the energy that goes into that process of us staying the same and not allowing someone to shift. There's so much energy into this fortifying that way that we behave, um, the roles that we have. Uh, this is the rule that we have in our relationship. I think one of the things that we really have to be aware of are what are the ways we're keeping each other asleep and not allowing for expansion Sometimes we make this secret agreement. If you don't grow, I won't grow. I'll allow you to do this if you allow me this behavior. And so we kind of keep this exchange going on. And what would happen if all that energy didn't go into us playing those games, but went into allowing that expansion, that trampoline type of a growth? That would be a much better way to be in a relationship. I think it would be scarier for most people though, because they've, first of all, probably haven't been in relationship to the real person, not the real thoughts, not the real feelings, not the real experiences. But then second of all, they'd have to keep up to date. This requires a lot of effort, right? It requires that you would actually have to communicate. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, um, whether it's, ethical non-monogamy or polyamory or open relationships, you know, I think the status quo for, for those kinds of connections, which is just constant communication, seems like the high point for most monogamous relationships, right? Like what is absolutely required of ethical non-monogamy, right? That you have to communicate constantly about what's happening is like what most monogamous relationships aspire to get to. Right. I mean, it's like, gosh, those require so much communication. And I often hear people say things like, oh, that just sounds too tiring. I can't imagine talking that much. It's like, what do you spend your relationship doing? <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds me of that uh, movie Best in Show uh, um, where it's like the money hunting, you know, wealthy woman and, and the old man that she has married and they're asking her what are the, what common interests do they have and she's like well we both love soup and talking or not talking <laughs> you know it's like we have zero that we share together and we marry strangers we live with strangers we we talk or don't talk with strangers and then we divorce as strangers because they were strangers <laughs> I think we get lazy. I think we get a uh, lazy love and I think we get lazy about our own personal development. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of places in which we kind of fall asleep to ourselves and we give ourselves special permission to do that. 
um, to not be expansive, to not challenge our thoughts, to not lean into new ideas about sexuality or spirituality. I think we just get lazy and complacent that we think that everything around us is all that there is. Mm -hmm. And so, and then we assume that for our partners and they also become a little bit um, monotonous. I think we become monotonous in ourselves. And this idea of like communicating in different relational dynamics, I I think that, I think that uh, we get lazy in all of our relationships, really, unless we're challenged by something, unless we have a new love. I I think that we all just kind of, it's easy to fall back asleep. And so I think that's just our default. And when things do become more challenging or we do open up to different and new expansive ways, so uncomfortable because we don't do it often. It's like living with your heart wide open, whether it's ideologies or practices. It's like, whoa, that's exhausting. Well, hey, we're so excited to talk to you about these principles of of relating, of having deep and connective friendships within your romance and how to expand a good relationship into making it a great relationship. That's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. Yeah, we want to make sure that everyone has access to digging a little deeper and finding pleasure in your connections. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why not only we do this podcast, but also we make ourselves available to being mentors to other couples one-on-one. That's something not a lot of people know about that we do. We certainly don't talk about it a lot, but we do walk through some beautiful and amazing passageways of relating with couples directly the four of us. So what you'll receive in that experience is you'll meet with us collectively as a team and you'll have that balance of trying to figure out, you know, how do we connect and create new possibility supported by us? Yeah. This is not necessarily for people whose ship is capsized and, you know, they're on the rocks of despair. I know that we've been in those places before. I certainly know others who have been in those places. That's not exactly what we're talking about. These are people who want to make a a good relationship into a great relationship, who want to take their ship and steer it in a new direction. And they're willing to put in the hard work to do it. That's something that we really ask is, you know, we're not perfect. We haven't found the perfect path. We found the honest path. We found the authentic path. We found the path that we believe is well worth travel. And we will travel with you. Yeah. This is something that we've been able to do with now just so many different couples. And I've got to say, it's one of the most rewarding parts that we do. And I love hearing the feedback. I remember working with, with uh, one couple and when, when they came, like they, they really couldn't even talk to one another. I mean, it was like, it's kind of um, just death stares in some ways. And they said they had been through everything. They had tried therapists before they had tried, you know, high dollar coaches before they had done different things. And after working with us for, uh, for I think four to six months, I remember she said, we've done it all. You guys worked. And by that, she meant we like each other again. <laughs> the problems that we're facing aren't necessarily each other anymore. We're, we're battling up the, the challenges of life, but as a team. And that's really what we're trying to get people to do is to find one another again. And in the process to take on life. So we want to walk with you. We want to champion you to be friends, to be lovers, to create new possibility. Um, with honesty, with authenticity, and really accepting who you are on planet Earth. We're really excited about this work. 
Yeah. So if you would reach out, if that's something you think that you're interested in doing, you can find the link to it on my link tree at Instagram and sign up for couples mentorship. Also, if that's not for you, keep on the lookout. We've got a retreat coming up next year in, I believe, Portugal. We've got other retreats I know that we're going to be doing next year, as well as um, we're going to be doing indulgence again in our awesome online eight-week course on building a fireproof relationship. I think that's going to be an amazing turn. It certainly has been amazing thus far. So lots of ways to connect to us outside of this podcast. And we're excited if that's something you want to do. One of my great spiritual mentors, Anthony DeMello said, uh, anytime you were surprised or shocked, it's a signal you were asleep. Hmm. Anytime you were surprised by someone's bad behavior, Anytime you were shocked or outraged by someone, you were asleep. It's like, well, of course they were capable of that. Like, of course. And of course you're capable of such things, right? We, we like a room, tend towards darkness, right? We tend towards slumber. Um, and it, there's a certain kind of vigilance. I think a friend is someone who is present to you, if I could define it that way, who, who bears witness to you, whether asleep or waking, they, they hold the arc of your life. And I think that that is one of the things that we often lose in lovership, that instead of someone who is present to you, we find people who want to turn a blind eye because if they looked at it, it would be too scary. It would be too frightening. It might mean that you would moved forward or moved on. And so we can see then sometimes that there's a bit of oddsness to that friendship versus lovership. Yeah. I think that um, in these places of, of finding friendship, we have to find that gem of curiosity again in our lovership. Because uh, I'm going to go back to that like monotony or like mundane or actually wounding um, that I already know this person. This is the kind of person who did this thing to me, or this is the kind of person that fill in the blank. I mean, we think we already know the person we're in relationship to. And I think that's a real friendship killer. It's a real intimacy killer. And so I think that how do we make that shift back maybe after we've fallen asleep? <laughs> because right in new relationships or new friendships or whatever is around you, you have this deep interest. It's like, tell me your favorite songs and talk to me about your family and talk to me about your, your BFFs. And right. Like we have this ability to be deeply interested in new places. It's like, if I travel somewhere, I'm way more interested in the food and the culture than back home. I've already been there. I've already done that. I, I'm like, I'm like snooze fest. But the idea is that there's probably a lot that I haven't explored. <laughs> there's probably more possibility than I realize, but it's going to take, it's going to take some curiosity and it's going to take some work and it's going to take me getting over old storylines that I know everything that I know what to expect and when I do that, I don't allow for any possibility or any change from this other person. Um, and so I think curiosity helps us get back when we've been in relationships where maybe uh, 
it's a lovership, but maybe it doesn't feel very friendly. I think that um, we often try to fix whatever problem there is. And maybe I say we, and I just mean men in general, although I, I certainly know that women can too. But sometimes it feels like I often hear from men that that's their first go-to, their first impulse to fix it, to fix the problem. But I, I wonder what would happen if we could have conversations with our romantic interests where we weren't fixing them, where we weren't fixing the problem of not knowing them, where we were just sitting with the not knowing, where we were just sitting with the, the issue of, I don't know you anymore. What would it be like to give one another the gift of not knowing? I don't know who this is. I don't know what you're about. I mean, the reality is we're not a consistent self. That's an illusion. To the extent that we believe that we are consistent is the extent that we're stuck in these habitual patterns and actions. We're always changing. And it's so easy to demand that others stay the same while we give ourselves the permission to change, right? But what if we gave one another in relationship permission to shift and evolve and grow, right? And I, I don't think we should let fear, the fear of being left behind, stop us from encouraging their growth. As you were talking, my eyes got like big saucers as you were as you were explaining that because I think it's so counter to everything, every fiber in our being. And so this permission to say, who is this stranger? Mm. <laughs> and maybe you don't know the person that you're across from as much as you think you do. Man, I think that would spend, uh, send a lot of people into kind of a tailspin. I think one of the things that we have said over time is to one another is sometimes when people say, oh, I know you, it can be so like, it's a prison. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I know you. Oh, I know you. I mean, there's lots of different tones in which you can hear that, but it actually leaves you locked down. Like there's no possibility for anyone to have another viewpoint of you. And that can just feel so mm, contrived and trapping versus tell me more about yourself. I want to know something that I actually don't know. And I actually don't want to even pretend that I do know. When I was in Crete that whole time, one of the really interesting parts of that experience was I was having so many different encounters every day. And the way we would continue to show up to one another was this, whether text or phone or video kind of conversation, tell me. What did you see? What did you experience? What did you feel? What was that like? Now, can you imagine if we took that in which there was no threat, there was no sense of, well, he saw something I didn't, right? There was no sense of that. It was, tell me, what did you experience? What did you discover? What about yourself did you encounter? What if we took that and allowed that same kind of generosity to anchor itself into our daily ho-hum kind of experience, right? What if we weren't threatened by their discovery and exploration? What if we demanded it? It sounds like we would have to work a little harder. It sounds like that we would have to employ a new set of skills because in those situations that you're talking about, I think there's a level of ease Right, like, oh, tell me about that pizza. That sounds so good. <laughs> it was good pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or there was this, there was moments where it was so hysterical. You would send like little voice recordings and I could always hear the water behind you. I just, 
adored that. I loved it so much to hear the crashing water. And one time you're on like street side, you're like, well, you probably can't hear the water because I'm kind of a ways away from it. And I could still hear it because <laughs> you were on an <laughs> island. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can hear it everywhere you go. Yeah. But it was just this delightedness in your delight. Mm. And I just think that we really have to have a new set of training if we take that experience and put it into the everyday life. And I would say even for ourselves first, like what am I delighting in? Where am I finding joy? What is this in front of me, this thing called life? Uh, We don't even do that for ourselves. And it often like, like we have to allow this waking up, like, come on, kind of a moment. Because of course, when, I mean, we're talking about a fun and exotic location. It's not necessarily, it's hard to find that. But every day waking up to ourselves, now that takes some work. In Buddhism, and I'm thinking of Vajrayanic Buddhism here, the, the four limitless qualities really talk about this and describe this, the that loving kindness or the action of love plays out when it encounters happiness, it becomes, it transmutes itself into empathetic joy, that, that it becomes a wholehearted participation in the happiness of others, that my love um, taking the action of kindness now finds you or encounters you as happy. And so has a sympathetic joy for you. And I remember my own Christian upbringing, weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh, take joy in the joy of others. I was totally thinking that. And I love that we can find this in various faith traditions. And I think if we could draw it into romance, that empathetic joy is the feeling of taking pleasure from someone else's pleasure and enjoyment and delightedness and new experiences instead of feeling miserly about uh, them and their experiences, instead of saying, I have a monopoly on that which gives them joy. I want to be the only one who gives them joy. I want to be the only experience that, that they can have that enables them to feel delightedness. Instead, it says, go out, explore, discover, feel, and then bring that back to me. Tell me about it so that my joy may be complete. Yeah. And, and I think you said this last piece is, and come back with it and come back with it. I think that's what relationships do. We have this revolving door. I don't just take this energy or take this experience and I don't just flee because that's not a friendship. Friendships are reciprocal right? There's not just one side of it that's always giving or one side of it that's always receiving or one side that's always listening and the other one's talking. It's equal measure. So this reciprocal relating is so important in which when I enter into with open hands, I know that you're not just taking and running and saying, thank you very much. I know that you're saying, thank you so much. I value you. And I come back around and I infuse relationship with it. I don't continue to deplete it. I don't, it's not a depletion because it's that revolving door. It gives back life. I think that's how we have to think of it. Um, Because we do experience sometimes one-sided friendships. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this life force that infuses and then it gives freely to the other and then it flows back in. 
Right. And, you know, I mean, I, I can think of feeling miserly in our relationship myself. I mean, I can think of times when it's been so difficult for me to give the same kind of generosity that maybe I was receiving. And that was so based in fear. I mean, almost any time I can think back to those times, as I look back on them, it, it was squarely rooted in insecurity and fear. I had very little to do with you, very little to do with your behavior. And I, I remember you even recently saying something like, and when you let me, when you, I'll say permit, but that's really not the idea here. But when, when I'm able to go out and freely experience the world, I'm able to bring those things back. I got to tell you, that's just from, from someone who is secure in themselves to someone who has been insecure in themselves at various points in time. Very threatening as we've been talking about. But if you can release that, I think that you get to this thing that you're describing, which is this beautiful give and take of mutual joy. Yeah, I I really I really value uh to be able to turn this concept of like we get to this lovership part, this committed partnership and all of a sudden we turn into a version that we don't actually prefer and we wouldn't give to friendships. And again, it's like we've accrued things over time. We know this person. If we give this kind of thing or if we show up in this way, we know them. We have to dip back into the place of curiosity. We have to dip back into, I don't know you the way that I have made you to be in my mind. And you don't know me. And what if we could reimagine what if we could step back into, I'm going to say a word like infancy again, in which we can say, hey, what are the possibilities? Where do you want to head? What do you want this to look like? Can I have that deep security in myself even when we're not attached or even when I drop the stories that we can still grow with new creativity? Romance cannot exist unless it's rooted in the bonds of friendship. You really can't move on from being friends. You can just build on it. The bonds of friendship require nurturance and cultivation and learning to entrust our dreams and trust our despairs and our deep sense of self to another. I think in a world that promotes isolation, even in romance, this is countercultural. Right? Entrusting your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences as close to the event horizon as you can. I'm thinking about how sometimes we'll do this, this thing like a data dump <laughs> where I'll just, and I think I'm the one who really does it the most, even though you do join in, but you know, where I will tell you every thought that is on my brain and like scour my mind to try and find any places where I have hidden cobwebs because I want to be up to the minute. I, I want you to know me in that even if there's a cost, right? That I actually don't want to miss you or have you miss me in this. And I think that that underscores the reality that our lover is primarily our friend, first and foremost. They're primarily someone who is present to us and the realities of our life. What's it like when you do that like data dump? What is it like for you just as kind of um, describing that? Because I think that's such an important feature I don't believe that we do that at all. I mean, I feel like we are really good at suppressing when we're really good at having thoughts and saying, oh, they're not important. Oh, this, this information, mm, you know, 
whether it is important or not to this person, I'll just continue to hold it. What's your experience when you decide, you know what, I want to have the stream of consciousness. What does it do for you? Oh gosh, I, I can breathe. Like I, you know, honestly, truth is so lazy for me. I mean, and by that, I mean like, it's just a lazy man's choice. It requires so much energy to stuff things and keep things bottled up. It really does. I mean, it really requires an awful lot to keep things hidden. Keeping up multiple storylines, keeping up, you know, making sure you're not letting the cat out of the bag. Oh my God, so much energy. At some point I got lazy. I was just like, no, I don't want to do the heavy lifting anymore. I'm just going to let it out. So it's a relief. The heavy lifting of lying, is that you're saying? God, it takes so much effort to lie. (laughs) People are like, oh, no, I can't imagine telling the truth. I'm like, God, I can't imagine telling lies anymore. Mm. It's exhausting. So there's a freedom. There's such a freedom and a release and that you're showing up without the baggage. And that is worth dipping into. Oh, it is just like floating down a lazy river, you know, like you're like a blue, the bear, you know, (laughs) just drinking out of your coconut shell. feels so good. (laughs) Oh, that is awesome. And then you can be in relationship. I mean, that's, what's awesome. It's like, I think that the, the reality is if you can think about truth, a lot of truth is painful, right? A lot of truths are painful. I'm attracted to someone or I lost my job or this happened or whatever it is a lot of, or I feel angry about truth is inherently risky. And oftentimes it's impact on others can be, hmm, you know, really kind of visceral and, and, and there's pain involved in that, but then let's add a lie to it. Let's add avoiding or minimizing or deflecting or, or hiding or omitting or uh, just telling an outright untruth. Well, now let's add all of that to it. Well, that's suffering. Mm, Yeah. Right. So now you've compounded the original pain. You've now added suffering to it. So it's pain plus suffering. So I like to say, like, let's just get back to good old fashioned pain, right? Let's take the suffering out of it because that compounds it. So I'm more interested in dealing with the pain as it is than adding pain plus suffering to the equation. Yeah. I, I think that's such an important piece there. And I'm thinking of this concept called uh, upper limits. And upper limits is this concept in which I live that way that you're talking about. I live with open handedness. I live with authenticity. I live in a way in which um, I show up with my authentic expression. And this idea of upper limit says like, I can only sustain that for so long before my bad behavior comes in. And so whether it's my attachment style that says alarm bells, you shouldn't have done that. Or it's my addictions, or it's my avoidance, or it's my fear of of belonging. It's really difficult to stay in that place for a a prolonged period of time before I start to kind of almost sabotage myself. And the reason why is because I haven't really done that. I haven't lived that way. And because my my heart feels so open to that, it wants to protect itself again. It wants to fall back asleep. You said a little while ago, it's easy to kind of go back into that darkness. It's hard to live with that kind of experience of our heart on fire with authenticity or accepting of self and showing up that way. Yeah. And again, to reiterate, I think you just said something I would not necessarily agree with. I don't think it's hard to live that way at all. I actually think it's so much easier. It's so much easier 
to actually just live what is instead of trying to bury it under all of this mountain, right? And we think it takes a great degree of skill, to be honest. Well, the truth is it takes a great degree of skill to lie about it too. Either way, it's work. But what I've found in our relationship is that the root of friendship, the root of friendship actually transforms even the most broken or harsh of places into something that, that can be walked through and worked through. I mean, we've gone through some, some really, really hard times. Even in the last six months, we've gone through some really hard times. And I think the, the thing that we'll look through each other with tears in our eyes and suddenly a smile will break out and we'll remember, oh, I'm actually primarily your friend first in this. It's a really great reminder. And oftentimes for me, images uh, flash across my mind on those early stages of friendship in which the building blocks were that. They were deep care. They were flexibility. They were laughter. They were uh, cheerleading and championing. You need to go on that trip. Who knows if you're going to get to go again? man, I didn't know I was going to get to use that muscle again. You should go to Crete, right? Like I get to use that muscle again and I get to use it with consciousness, right? That's not just because that's what I do. I get to do it because I get to choose to be your friend. And love really can't be lazy. I know I have been really guilty of lazy love. And I don't think that we can afford that. I think we have to show up with curiosity. And the idea that our partners and ourselves are going to change over time. And we can't get lazy on ourselves. Mm, Yeah. So many amazing things here to think about and reflect on and all kind of wrapped up in that gift of friendship that exists as the basis for, but also the circumference of romance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, we're uh, we're excited to be back with Love Like Hell. And uh, thanks for listening in. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love Love like like hell. Love like hell. That that was my signature. (sighs) 